Hey Alexa, play songs by the Butthole Surfers. Here's some music by the Surfers on Amazon Music. In the 1980s, the Reagan Revolution made America square again. The freaky 60s were out. The conformist 50s were in. You wanted law and order in this town. You've got it. If you were tempted to get out of line, all you had to do was... Just say no. But deep in the heart of Texas, something weird Weird. was happening. Satan! 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 Butthole Surfers created a brain-melting art-punk spectacle that broke all the rules and became a cult phenomenon. A haven for the misfits, queers, and weirdos who didn't fit the Reagan mold. Their shows were psychedelic explosions of beautiful, ugly chaos. And people were scared. They influenced a generation of bands that became multi-platinum superstars, in part because they weren't named the Butthole Surfers. Why the fuck would you want to name your band the Butthole Surfers? They gave America the cultural enema it needed. And America said thank you with a major label deal and a record produced by Led Zeppelin's John Paul Jones. Soon the buttholes were on everyone's lips. I'm a surfer! Butthole surfer! Yeah, yeah, yeah! (laughs) These guys got their name from me. And then, the band with the ultimate anti-commercial name had a number one hit single. Ladies and gentlemen, Butthole Surfers. Now, finally, we will make the documentary these art punk pioneers deserve. We've already started the interviews and we have animators working on some really cool stuff. It's better to regret something you have done. We're scouring the globe for archival footage. We even stumbled across this. The buttholes blew my mind when I first saw them in 1985. So I shot them at CBGB's and I've been collaborating with them ever since. Short films, music videos, even the movie I made with Alex Winter, Freaked. Hey, he's got a hand under there! When Gibby had a vision of a hair flapping machine, I built it. Yo, boss! Now Paul wants to do reenactments with prairie dogs. So we'll do that too. And we're going to learn a lot about what makes these amazing folks tick. I mean, make it stupid. I don't like the word soup. We want to make a film that will blow your mind like a butthole surfer show and tell the incredible story of this band with no compromises. And that's why we're making this film independently, in the DIY spirit of the band. We really need your help to make this a reality, so please don't make us beg. Like this. (laughs) Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I am talking with the director and producer of the Butthole Surfers movie. We are talking with Tom Stern, who's actually been on the show before a long time ago when he was on the Freaked episode, as well as Noah Durbin, who is the producer of the Butthole Surfers movie. I have to say, Butthole Surfers, been a fan of theirs for a long darn time. They were a band that I was pretty unfamiliar with other than their album covers, which used to disturb me so much when I would go into the Wind at Record Exchange. And finally, when I was working at 88.3 WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, I went into the record library, grabbed all of the Butthole Surfers albums that we had, went into Little Studio B, put a cassette tape in the cassette tape recorder, just went through and kind of did a little bit of a needle drop, literally on these albums, found songs that within the first, say, 30 seconds... I really enjoyed, and I created my own little best of the butthole surfers from that experience. And that was such a prized possession because it was one of those tapes that just, I had never heard anything like that before. Got some really great exposure to a band I had never really heard before until things like Hairway to Steven came out. I mean, it might have been right around that same time. Obviously, they would go on to bigger things like Electric Larry Land. People would eventually find out who they were, and I'm so glad that this documentary is going to be out there evangelizing that butthole surfer's message for the entire world. I had a great time talking with Tom and Noah. 
I hope that you enjoy this interview. How do you make a great music doc? There's a lot of mediocre music docs, you know. So my vision for this is settled to make it more like a musical. Like, let the songs structure the film. Let the songs really be in the spotlight, you know. I, I find watching music docs often, it's frustrating because you're hearing talking heads talk about how great the band is, and then you hear five seconds of their music. You know, you're like, okay, well, I guess that's great, but why not really let the music shine and let make, I want to make this like a midnight movie experience. That's why we're calling it the butthole surfers movie, as opposed to a documentary about the butthole surfers. We want to create the, some version of the excitement and mind fuck kind of immersive psychedelic experience that was a butthole surfer show in their prime. We want this movie to kind of take you there. If you never got the chance to see them, or if you did, you know, we want it to transport you back to this kind of, immersive, chaotic, three-ring circus of Dada spectacle and meaning. You know, these guys were super smart artists. The, you know, the, the, the juxtapositions that they put on stage were so startling and primal and powerful that an ordinary music doc is not going to suffice. We have to make something really special to honor their legacy. So, Noah, what was your first experience with the Butthole Surfers? I was 18. And I was dating a Gen Xer. <laughs> he turned me on to them. I, I actually got to them in the backwards way of um, Jesus Built My Hot Rod, the ministry song. And Gibby's like basically the song. <laughs> and I was like, who is this? Like, this is like genius. And then, then it was like the Mike Judge, the like uh, Beavis and Butthead who was in my room and Dust Devil that was featured on. And then I got deeper and deeper and I was, I saw their album covers, like their first album art with the children, with the stomachs and the, and the wee-wees. I, I actually, I have Tourette syndrome. It's not like a light thing for me and I've struggled a lot with it. And finding a band that's like really embracing being weird and Thinking outside of the box, it's as if I felt like we're communicating in a way, like the band gets my brain. They put on audio and visuals what I have inside going and better and, and funner. And, and that's how I became really like obsessed with them. And, um, and that's also how I got to Freaked because Sweatloaf is and Gibby is in Freaked. So actually like all of this is through being a fan. <laughs> Tommy, you've been a fan of theirs for, you said, 35 years. Since 84. Wow. So a little bit more than that. What was your first experience with them? I saw them at 8BC and the Pyramid Club in East Village. When I was an NYU student, I was a super into underground music. That was my persona. Me and my friends were just like, we went to shows. We went to, you know, SST bands and the whole amazing underground scene that was happening then. That was my world. So then one day, my old friend Alex Winter, you know, we were roommates in college and, and he was like, oh man, there's this new band, the Butthole Surfers. You, we got to check them out. I was like, yeah, we went and they fucking blew me away. I was like, who the, what? You know, they were just such a unique, amazing band. They didn't, they weren't like anybody else. They were really like, you know, so peculiar and eccentric and doing something you couldn't see anywhere else. And, you know, Gibby had the clothespins in his hair and he was wearing a weird like woman slip, you know, like he would do the gender bending thing, but not to make himself sexy. He would dress like a, a dowdy housewife from Amarillo, you know, um, I was captivated by his weird charisma and Paul's guitar, just like, Whoa, he's such a fucking amazing guitar player. And the two drummers, you know, Teresa and King making this thunderous tribal beat just sucked me in. I love that tribal beat, you know, and it put me in this, it, it, it was like, you know, it's like a, a tribal ceremony, you know, it's not like a rock show. You go and you're sucked into this, you know, a lot of us were taking psychedelics too. Like I saw them after that, I saw them at CBGB's and took acid and it was just like a life-changing experience because the music was in me and around me and in my spine. I felt like, I felt like Paul Leary had opened my spine and strung his guitar with the nerves in my spine. It was playing directly into my brain. You know, it was just like a, a transcendental, but transcendent. 
with a transcendent experience. And so then uh, I went and asked them at CB's the next time they came to New York, if I could shoot them, I went to the sound check and Paul was super nice and like down to earth and was like, Hey man, yeah, sure. Well, you should have seen us at dance interior the other night, man. That's when it really got crazy. And he was referring to the infamous show where Kathleen, the first time Kathleen, their naked dancer performance artist, performed with them at Danceteria. And hit, and her and Gibby had this thing that got pretty sexual. It was simulated, but well, we'll explore that in the film. But it was crazy. It was an amazing experience for both of them and the audience. But it, it was like notorious and it created a, you know, a legend instantly. But anyway, the CB show... Gibby was more intimidating and kind of spoken riddles and was sort of like, yeah, I don't know, man. Well, he was playing with a big paper cutter on uh, the bar at CB's. It was intimidating because I was like, oh, wow, that's sharp. And he's like, yeah. And he's like slicing, you know, it's like not looking at me. And I was kind of scared of him. But finally, he's like, you know, I just people do this and they never send us to tape, you know. And I was like, I swear I'll send you the tape. I swear I'll send you the tape. Saying, like, all right. He said, yes. I shot the show. Like, one foot from the stage on a chair in CBs. And every time they, you know, go into something hard, a mosh pit would erupt. And I'd be like, whoa! And I was trying to just stand up. But it was a fucking great show. I mean, they just kicked ass musically. Uh, you know, that's on YouTube. Check it out. 86, February 86 at CBGB's. It's on YouTube. And then I, I cut for the song Cherub. I made a short film with a friend of mine named Alex Halpern at school. We made this short film around the song and we sent it to texas and they loved it and they were like you guys are cool <laughs> so like you know I, I we hit it off and then like yeah we worked together on our film freaked and barbecue we did a yeah the barbecue uh movie which is also called entering texas we did alex winter and i did for this impact video magazine thing we did in like 89 which was a uh, kind of counterculture underground Culture Magazine on video. Um, so we did a short film for them with John Hawks, future Academy Award nominee, uh, who we just interviewed the other day. Lots of stuff. The, the, the film Freaked was actually originally a Butthole Surfer's vehicle. We wrote it as a Butthole Surfer's vehicle. They were going to star in it, but that version was too sick and transgressive for Hollywood and we couldn't get any money. So we rewrote it as a more main, you know, like slightly more mainstream comedy because Fox actually read our script the the transgressive one they're like we like you guys but this we're not going to do this <laughs> so we rewrote it gibby gibby was reduced from you know the star to a cameo which was a bummer but paul you know like paul did the music and we used their songs and it was also before they hit mainstream really mainstream like it was before pepper it's like yeah yeah it was before pepper so it was maybe after pepper they would let you do the weird shit well, the funniest thing was this guy, Roger Birnbaum, was a big executive at Fox. We had a meeting about the soundtrack when we were doing Freaked. And we were like, we want to pack it with cool bands like, like Nirvana, you know, and who were had just hit like Nirvana. But we were giant Nirvana fans when nobody knew who they were because that was our world, you know. So um, and he's like, Nirvana, show the big now. What time is it? Guess they're still pretty big, Roger. I remember seeing that piece that you did for Impact Video. There was a video store around here where they took Squeal of Death and that and um, what, Isles of Doom, right? And just like oh, yeah. all that. And they put it all onto one uh, VHS tape. So I remember renting where, where that way you? back when. I'm just outside of Detroit. That's great. I love that. I mean, that's, you know, that's my weird career has been kind of, you know, fringe and weird and if that's how it's spread is through those little video stores and and then like you know cinemax and shit but it's just like yeah that's like a such an important cultural uh network those little stores all my friends were tape traders you know that was our thing so where are you guys sourcing all of your concert footage and and your other footage from is first of all there's a lot of stuff everywhere because you know they're kind of like for a for an underground band they're really big so there's all over the place stuff but we were working on the movie one day when we receive a magic package <laughs> we open the package and it's filled with fucking tapes on tapes on tapes on tapes whoever is listening to this if you sent it to the, to us thank you because we really don't know where it came from it was like this anonymous Gift. gift and and 
It, so, it's 50 tapes. And it's really good, really good footage. It's uh, great footage. And we're having it digitized everything right now. Uh, we, uh, should I mention? Uh, Dave Travis. Yeah, Dave Travis, who's, who's shot a lot is on, on his own and is directed, but he's also a huge um, like video person. He recorded video, he digitizes video. So he's been helping us uh, like because it's so much, so much materials. So he's been helping us like digitize it, but also see what's like worth keeping. And we also got some other people because we did the Kickstarter and we became public with the movie. People were like, hey, I have like the best footage of the Densiteria show. And yeah. they send it to us. Yeah. Crowdsourcing footage has been a, a huge boon, even though we don't know who this guy is. There is a return address. I've been too busy because I have to write him a letter. There's no name. It's just a return address. If you're listening, contact us at the battlesurfersmovie.com website and we will thank you forever. We're going to give him or her a huge thanks. Yeah, whoever you are. Because we have, so long story short, we've got a ton of amazing performance footage. We've got a ton of archival interviews. You know, they were so funny in interviews. And we've got a ton of current interviews. Yeah, so we really don't want to rely on old video because you know anybody can do that take some old stuff and be like this is a movie yeah but we want it to actually be like a movie an experience an experience and we're kind of letting the songs lead lead the plot drive the plot but also because the buttholes were like multimedia artists really so we're really trying to not keep it just on music or just on video like that's why we brought in i don't know if you saw the gibby puppet that we have made yes um, I love it. We're going to have puppets. We're going to have animation. We're working with like really, really cool up and coming artists and also established artists. Like the people who made the puppet are like Crank Yanker, Jim Henson people, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's really, a, and, and of course we have the new interviews that are giving you a current perspective on things. And, uh, and also people that were never interviewed, like childhood friends, family members, Road people, yeah, we're talking yeah. sound guys, projectionists. Um, you know, and you know who their first projectionist was Richard Linklater. So, we're interviewing Richard, and yeah, he I talked to him. I was we were at South by Southwest, and, and we talked to him. He's, he's excited about the film, too. It's funny, people don't know how much they impacted, you know, like people think either they know them from like pepper and they're like oh it's the avalanche coming down the mountain bend yeah. or they're like yeah it's the underground phenomenon but most people don't really know like the little impacts like you know gibby was in that band p with well now we will know his fate johnny Depp. <laughs> but uh, um you know and the court and courtney thing the red hot chili peppers were hugely influenced by them flea was in the video for who was in my room last night Jim Jarmusch was very influenced by Gibby Haynes and, you know, and Gibby was actually had an opportunity to have a cinematic career that it didn't quite come together. But like, you know, well, he was in Dead Man. He was in Jim Jarmusch's Dead Man. He was in Dead Man. But memorable cameo. like people who are like of note have always been very fascinated with them. And the Sparks, like the movie that came out on Spark, Sparks now, I kind of like I'm jealous of the tagline that they say, like, it's your band's favorite band. Right. Props to you, Edgar Wright. It's a great movie. How do you even decide what songs are going to move this narrative along? Because the buttholes were so amazing when it came to just different styles. I mean, you can take two albums, two random songs. I mean, going to Florida is like a whole, you know, like that. That's going to be in it. Oh, my God. That's one of my favorites. I think that might have been the first butthole song I ever heard. It's a great song. That's that was like one of the standouts at that CB show I shot, you know, because I think they just written it and they were just starting to perform it. And Gibby just gives it. He gives, gives it. And so does Paul. Like, you know, yeah, because Paul. of the stop and start nature of that thing. It's like these rests and like, yeah. and then you know, <laughs> they it's great. We're but, learning some really cool stuff actually, like now that we've um, you know, we're mm-hmm. honing more and more about the song approach. Mm-hmm. And we've discussed this with Paul, with uh, King, with Gibby. 
and we're kind of walking through the songs with them and getting the stories about how they were made yeah. but about also just like it brings out things you know like you start talking about something and something comes out yeah <laughs> like something like I'm from their first record the song something something, something was a song you know something she said to me last night Maybe something she said to me do we tell though yeah this is a great little okay revelation. Like I asked Paul, like, what was the something she said? And the answer was that she liked Gibby better than me. So it was a girl in college. You know, they went to college together and some girl that Paul liked, liked Gibby better. So it was like, a, you know, that's what she said. <laughs> and also, like, what's another interesting thing is that we're getting so many different accounts. Like the bottle surfers are kind of mythicized and. There's always a myth and you, you, yeah. you mythologize and you never know what's the real story. And we may never know. Even when the movie is done, yeah. we may never know the true story. But Gibby would say one thing, Poe would say another yeah. thing, and King would say a completely different thing that has to do with Michael's type. So it's kind of like that's part of what we're doing. We, we're cross-referencing people's takes on stuff because we did hear other versions for something. Also, yeah. I know that Paul wrote it, yes. but other people who swear they were there. Yeah say something else and so it's, it's the Rashomon we're, we're embracing the Rashomon effect and the oral history effect like you know please kill me is an amazing book I'd love to be able to capture some of that where it's just like people who are there like remembering it but but then like you know play with the differences in their memories because human memory is obviously extremely unreliable but um yes how do you choose the songs great question because they've got this huge catalog but Basically, we're choosing the songs that are most we feel like are great songs, like they're you know and 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 kind of represent a, a step of the story of the band. So like hey, you know the song "Hey, that's a great song. It's also very kind of poppy and accessible. I think that might open the film because that was the first song Gibby wrote, and Gibby wrote it like it was just it came right out of him, and it's like, oh shit, you know he always he's always like. Saying he's not a musician, but that that's a great song that just popped out of Gibby. Um, Paul just kind of added guitar. So we're finding out all the details of who actually wrote each song, which is so interesting because the buttholes were notorious for never giving song credits or listing any credits. It was just weird doodles of deers pooping and stuff, you know, because they're these dada freaks who they they built the mystique. And now part of our thing is like we're put, looking past the mystique. To find out really what what they were doing, who, who the, you know who these indi- who these people are, and what what they how they did it. But it still also remains kind of mysterious because they are characters. <laughs> they are, and, and, and <laughs> so even though when we dig deep and we are very intimate with them, and we have, but still there's an air of like they are artists, and and you don't get boring answers from these people. You really don't. Uh, okay, so another song I want to tell you about is Graveyard. This... Don't tell me that did it. No? No. Save it for the movie. You save it for the movie? Yeah. All right. <laughs> I save something. But there's the great the song Graveyard, which is one of my favorites, and they did a great version of it, that CB show. The way that song was conceived is completely amazing and, and kind of emblematic of the whole dynamic of the band. And there's two versions on the um, Locust Abortion Technician. There's a weird, slow version, and then there's one that's a little more together. The story of those two versions is amazing. And we want to do a recreation of it because yeah. it, it, it kind of like, it's just amazing how that happened. Yeah. So this is going to be what a twenty-hour miniseries spread. No, no, it's like it can be. I am such. I'm so into pace because you know I've been working in TV so long. You know, it's like I really feel like pace is is everything. I don't want it to be boring. So you know, we're going to just cut it down to the best stuff. It's not going to be too long. It'll be under two hours. You know, it'll be reasonable because like that's one of the trends in modern movie making. I hate is the excessive yeah. length and these indulgent directors who are just like, yeah, I know it's got to be three and a half hours. You know what? It doesn't. And it sucks because it's three and a half hours. It's like, it would be so much better at two hours, but you know, we'll have a ton of ancillary materials that we could probably put out on, you know, in different ways, um, you know, on the internet, on the website as extras or whatever. But I want to make a coherent piece of art. You know, I want to make a feature film that is 
that honors the butthole's legacy, but works on its own terms. So for that reason, it's got to be under two hours. It's got to be something you can watch in a midnight movie. We want people who don't even know the band to enjoy it. Yeah. And they will. They will because... It's fun. You know... And we're like, you know, like the, one of the things that attracted me to Tom's work is the cult movie thing. You know, like I went to a screening of Freaked. I'm like a huge... I was like raised in the Rocky Horror Picture Show like once a month. Friday, we perform. I was in those casts of reenacting it. So to me, it's like I was always really attracted to the fringe and to the like the the midnight thing, like a cinema. Like I go, what I do all the time in my spare time is I just go to see screenings of old movies, new movies, but mostly old movies. Mostly 80s, 80s slasher movies. Mostly 80s, not slasher necessarily, but horror. And it's just like, it's really exciting to me to see these worlds come together because the battles were yeah. like this midnight show of chaos and if we can in some way kind of bring it to people and like i want people to make it an event to go see this movie to go to the theater and they might come out wet we don't know (laughs) they'll be sweating (laughs) that we we might scare people when they're watching it we don't know me and noah (laughs) noah and i are two different generations but we both are midnight movie freaks i used to go to see john waters movies and dawn of the dead and you know all the midnight movies from my era, early eighties, it's such a great thing. And it's, it's, it's sort of like faded a bit. We, we really want to help bring it back. You know, I mean, Alamo draft house is a, is a great thing, but it's just like such a bonding thing for, for like weirdos and freaks to get together at a midnight movie and watch some, you know, some, and so, you know, and you might meet your favorite director and end up producing their movie. There you go. If you go to these midnight screenings. So, the only time I've seen the Buttholes perform live was their inexplicable inclusion in Lollapalooza, the first. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it wasn't that inexplicable because they were a you know, high-grossing independent band on the road. And Harry Farrell was like, you know, who's cool? Well, the Buttholes surfers are cool. It was an interesting lineup, like Susie and the Benches, Nine Inch Nails, Rollins Band, Living Color. Body count. Body count. We just talked to Ice uh, T. Yes. Sorry, we just talked to Ice T. Yes, we did. And uh, he had some cool memories of seeing the show. He 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 was like. Um, he was awestruck by he, their theatrics. Yeah, the, when Gibby brought out a shotgun on stage and fired it off, Ice T was damn. I just got outdone because <laughs> he had like a starter pistol as part of the body count thing. He had a prop, he had a little pistol and Gibby comes out with a shot. Boom. It was like motherfucker came out with a shotgun. He was like, damn. And we talked to Henry Rollins also yes. about that. And he was also, everybody, like their co-performers were all in kind of awe, shock, fear and love yeah. of the bottles. And they loved like hanging out with them because it was a whole tour. And, you know, they all said that it was great to hang out with them and they were good people, but the theatrics were just shocking well, to scary. all these pros. They were scary. Yeah. Like, how many bands are legitimately scary? Not many. <laughs> like, Alice Cooper's not scary. It's just, a you know, it's like Vegas. But, like, with Gibby and the Buttholes, he, he was presiding over this just, just kind of, like, chaotic in-the-moment thing that could go anywhere. And you just felt, you know, that had that crackling energy of danger and possibility and just like, whoa, this dude, he's going to just, you know, he doesn't care. He's fucking going for it. <laughs> I miss that. But but I know exactly what you mean. To come back to your statement, it, it wasn't great to see the buttholes in daylight. That's true. Middle of the afternoon. I Middle think of the afternoon. Not band, their, maybe? Not their time. They ha- and they can't be warm up act. They have to close. You cannot come on after them. They have to like shut the place down because they're going to blow your mind and reduce the air to, you know, some kind of cheese. You know, they would unleash these unholy noises that would in their digital delay, you know, so ahead of their time with like using digital delay in, in creative ways and, and, and audio distortion on voices and stuff. So you'd be in this world of smoke and lights and strobes and just, you know, like, giant slabs of noise and it's like you can't fucking follow that it's just too intense you so know, yeah i listen to a lot of uh, a lot of music in general but sometimes very heavy music like dying fetus shit 
And my dogs are, I have two dogs, and they're chill with dying fetus. But when I play some barhole stuff, they fucking freak out. They can't take it. They're like, this is like demon shit. We don't like this. And I'm like, you shut up, dogs, because this is what I'm playing now. So you've got tons of interviews. You've got hundreds of hours worth of concert footage that you're going through, digitizing, cataloging. When is it going to be enough? And do you have a date there that you're aiming for? Yes. But the thing is, we have a whole nother layer that you didn't mention, which is animation, reenactments, weird reenactments with strange casting of weird celebrities that don't, that, that, that are totally wrong. And then, you know, uh, puppet show, puppet show reenactments, all kinds of multimedia stuff we're going to layer on top yeah. to read. Because some of these stories around the band are so amazing. So we have to have visual visualizations. It's sort of like that, um, you know, that great animation uh, with Doc uh, Rivers, the um, guy who threw a no-hitter on acid. It's that kind of thing where you're hearing a great story VO-wise and you're seeing an amazing animation or other visual treatment. Yeah. Like that's how we want to blow people's minds. But in terms of the process... First of all, this is a really good time to mention that we are, in fact, still fundraising to everyone who's listening. Um, We have very attractive investment and donation opportunities for anyone who might be able or, uh, you know, want to help us because we do. It is a big project. There's a lot of different components to it. And, you know, and we do actually, you wouldn't expect it, but we actually pay people. <laughs> we do. And, um, so that would be um, fantastic. We're actually right now um, cutting something together to yeah. kind of show our chops. So we're going through the archive. We're going through the interviews to select those moments that we want to re- reenact because there are so many you can do, but it's kind of like we will we will choose the best things to do. The cream and of the crap. The cream of the crap. And right now we're kind of like really gearing into moving into serious, serious editing because our initial hope was to have a festival premiere. We're, um, we're still hoping. 2023. Yeah. And uh, hopefully, you know, uh, the fundraising goes well and it will come alive. We yeah. will do it because we have so much good stuff. And it's a movie that really, it needs to happen. The fans have been so excited and not just like, you know, random people have suddenly decided that, you know, like they discovered the band now through all the publishing of like the the movie stuff. And it's gained a lot of traction, like big shots are into it. uh, Average Joes are into it. We've got a lot of support. Sorry. And there's a, a really also interesting aspect to mention that like these are really pioneering people and not just in the audiovisual realm but also you know they came from texas early 80s with like a gay drummer a woman drummer well, two gay drummers two gay drummers like one of them is a guy one is a girl and you know cross-dressing burning themselves um, you know like and they were a haven for freaks and weirdos and for the people that didn't fit in in those reagan times and in texas there is a cultural significance to it and also what it contributed to the eruption of grunge and like alternative music in general. They have like a heritage of being really, they pioneered a lot of the acceptance and did stuff way before their time that nowadays we're like, yeah, sure. Woman drunk, but like, no, there weren't many, like it was weird. And Kathleen, the performance artist that toured with them and, and danced naked it was all her. They never told her what to do. She was like, they basically picked her up for her energy. And she was a performance artist. And she was like, I want to do this. And she she has a great reasoning. And that's also something we're exploring in the movie for why she did everything. But yeah. they were a very safe place. A very except, even though they were scary on the outside and shocking. Inside, we can't find people to talk shit about them. That's part of the problems when we make this movie. Nobody would talk shit about them. We're trying to get the tea and they won't spill it. Uh, Kathleen, by the way, is a, a, one of the biggest revelations of this process has been talking to Kathleen Lynch, who I always, you know, I didn't know her. I mean, I, I she didn't talk. Like, she was very quiet back then. I would see her backstage and stuff. She turns out to be an incredibly intelligent and hyper-articulate person who's just 
a total intellectual and lived this strange experimental life as art kind of thing and, and like dropped out of society and was living with like all the drag queens in Atlanta, like RuPaul and Lady Bunny, Lady Bunny and Floyd Felicia, who we interviewed for the film in this radical. Larry T, of course. Larry T. Not but to they, forget, Larry T has a new single out. Sorry. And that that world, <laughs> interestingly, the punk like Gibby, uh, I mean, uh, the Butthole Surfers, they they had a real attraction to that that drag world. So there was this weird um, mingling of the the drag outrageous transgressive drag scene in Atlanta in the eighties and punk rock, weird punk rock, with the Butthole Surfers playing at this place called the Celebrity Club, where these two worlds collided. It was like drag queens and crazy Butthole Surfers fans and you know that's a really interesting thing culturally to me you know um and, and kathleen so you know her voice is going to be pretty prominent in the film because she has such an interesting take on it she's so intelligent and and the way Very she describes artistic. it she's yeah uh, like a pure artist you know like you know no concern for money it's just like she she just wants to express herself and that's what she was doing on stage and she loved it with the buttholes but now she has the ability to kind of speak about it so eloquently. So I love her voice in the film. That's been a, a real revelation. So helping us make this movie happen is not just because it's cool and fun and like for because we want it to happen, but I think it will mean a lot to a lot of people to hear the stories of Teresa, of King Coffee, of Kathleen, and even of Gibby and Paul. There's some deep shit in there that needs to be uncovered and I think will inspire and help a lot of people to hear it. And it, it does for me, it inspires and helps me a lot. The human stories, apart from the music and everything else, the human stories are, are so compelling. There's so many, because these people are really interesting. They're not like dumb, you know, uh, rock idiots that just party partied and, and fucked a lot of groupies. They, that wasn't who they were. They're, they're real artists, you know? And so they, they, they're just, fascinating so you know to to it, it is a lot to squeeze into an hour and 45 minutes but you know i think with a fast pace and kind of a a a really fun multimedia approach we can do it we can tell all these stories and make a great film we're we're hoping to premiere next you know year festival. at the festivals General. festivals but there's <laughs> some there's some you know it's a natural fit for south by southwest for instance where, the, where they lived yeah. and um uh there was a lot of excitement about it when we were there at south by a few weeks ago you know people are psyched they're uh they're looking forward to it and and we're excited to give them a great film but it's yeah it, we even do. nicholas cage is excited that's right the very person so I know with Kickstarter, there's always like those levels and stuff. And it's like, oh, you get a digital copy. Of course, I've donated. I can't remember what I donated. Thank but you, thank you. You're welcome. But when it comes to you, so now you're doing it through ButtholeSurfersMovie.com. Is that the same thing? Or is it just all like, here's like the tax deductible donation type of thing? You know, in terms of ongoing fundraising, in addition to seeking out people of means who have more money to, to invest in the arts to support the project, you know, regular fans who um, don't have a ton of money can help by just buying a T-shirt on the website. And we've got these amazing T-shirts, some designed by Don Rock, which was the shirt Kurt Cobain wore famously uh, in the year that Punk broke, the Dave Markey film. And then we have uh, T-shirts that Giddy Haynes designed specifically for this movie. And they're both for sale on our ButtholeSurfersMovie.com website. Everything counts and we're really like thankful, you know, the Kickstarter has allowed us to make immense progress yes. in the movie. And we are so, 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 so grateful for everybody who's contributed and you too, Mike. Um, yes. Because really, even if like, let's say 100,000 people give us five bucks, boom, we're done. The power of the fans is really important and we couldn't continue without them so thank you for for being there and, and it's not like we don't discriminate any donation big or small is great we're just like you know it there, it comes a time when you really need to go into editing and do all kinds of fancy shit with the puppets and ta, ta, ta. and that's we need a little bit more for that but it doesn't mean that we don't cherish and appreciate everything that comes in and thank you for allowing allowing us to be indie
Uh, yes, I second that. I, I'm so grateful to the fans and the people who've supported us so far. It's fantastic. We really, you know, it, it means everything. And, and it's allowing us to make this film, which is a passion project. We're not doing this for money. We're doing it because we love the band and we want to preserve their legacy and kind of help cement their place in history so that, you know, people can and future generations can know about them. Everything is kosher. We want we want to make something that would really represent them well and, and make them proud. Like it doesn't mean that it would be one-sided because they're not the ones who are doing no. the final cut. Like it's Tom directs it and he leads it. But at the same time, you know, we 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 are also fans of it. like we want to- we are, but it's that's an important point that Noah said. It's not yeah. gonna be a hagiography no. because we all hate hagiographies, you know, it's boring. We don't want to just talk about how great they are we want to know the dark side we want to know the problems and we want to know everything so we also it's annoying that people won't talk shit to us we've been trying some people talk shit <laughs> not a- <laughs> well some of the people that want to that, that talk shit aren't aren't talking to us they talk shit yeah and- people talk shit not to us but please if you're hearing these people who have shit to say about the battle surface we want to hear <laughs> we it. have an open like, ear i'll open put ear. it in and i'll put it in if it's <laughs> legitimate you know yeah. because i i want to give voice to everybody people who pissed them off you know got pissed off or whatever you know they do they made a, a few enemies along the way and you know it's there was a historic battle with touch and go records that's quite historic because you know they sued touch and go to get their masters back. A lot of people in the indie rock scene were pissed at them because Corey Rusk was this beloved, is a beloved figure in the indie music world who ran Touch and Go, but it became a, a, a big legal precedent. It went to like an appellate court, like really high up and the Buttles won and their victory actually has long lasting legal precedent effects for, for artists and copyright issues. Feels like Al Jorgensen could probably talk some shit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like he's uh, no comment. Yeah. No comment. On next question. <laughs> Was there any hesitation from the band when you came to them with this idea, or did they just bite down right away? Paul said, "You know what? I hate documentaries. I don't want to be in a documentary. I hate interviews. But if we're gonna do one, you're the guy to do it, Tom." So that was nice. And he said, yeah, let's do it. You know, so like, you know, he recognizes the value in it. Gibby was all in from the beginning, as was King Coffee. It's worth mentioning that a lot of people tried to do this movie and reached out to the buttholes and and asked them to do this movie. And Tom's going to do it. (laughs) Sorry, dudes. Sorry, some fancy people that I'm not going to name that tried to do this. Uh, they want Tom. Well, and there's a reason they want Tom. And also you can check out Tom's video that he did for Paul Leary's new uh, single. Now, not so new, but uh, yeah. would you like, do you like to eat a cow? Yeah, it's on YouTube. Do you like to eat a cow? It's a really cool video that I did during COVID almost entirely alone. Like I just, I, I was the acting talent, the puppeteer. I made the all the puppets and shot it and lit it and, and edited it. But one other person helped me. She's sitting right here. Oh, my God. Uh, that's when we initially <laughs> met and she wanted to learn about filmmaking. I was like, well, help me shoot this um, video because I need someone to hold this blood bag. Yeah. So she held the blood bag and squeezed it so that this cow at the end, <laughs> this toy cow, uh, splits in half like the doors of the elevator in The Shining and torques of blood come out. And um, I was assistant blood mixer. Yeah. It took a long time to get the blood just right. It took some time, yes. Well, Tom, Noah, thank you so much for your time. This was great talking with you. Thank you so thank much, you. Mike. Please don't make us look silly. <laughs> well, that's... But it's kind of hard. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm going to move down to Florida. <laughs> and I'm going to bowl me a perfect game. I'm going to cut off my leg down in Florida. And I'm going to dance one-legged off in the rain. Well, the city of Sydney for years, blind man. And they 
that it will be dealing with a Soviet engineer. I said that when I go down to Florida away, there ain't no kind of sexual healing that I would not, should not, or could not do. Say this right here. Well, I'm moving down to Florida. And you know that I'm gonna have to potty train the chairman Mao. And I'm gonna make the governor write my do-do a letter child. And then I'm gonna grind me a white castle slider out of India's sacred cow. Well, I'm going down to Florida, child. <laughs> and I'm going to build me the atomic bomb. I'm going to hold time hostage down in Florida, child. Ain't nobody, ain't nobody going to tell me what to do, stepchild. By this time, I guess you figured out about Florida. <laughs> Turn the muddy water into Vaseline stained. Maybe making tadpoles the size of Mercury's in Florida. That'd be telling Julio Iglesias what to sing now. Well, whoever said this Sydney Fortier was a blind man. And you the same of Elvis Presley, too. Because all the sausages that dance like Ray Bolger on the hood of a car in a traffic jam. No, just exactly what to do right here.
Looking 